Lord, that's our, that's our call, our prayer for you this morning, too. That's why we're here this morning. We're here to worship and praise you for all of the work that you've done, but we're here because we want to glorify you with our lives. We don't want to just sit back and hope that, that government and policies will do that, but we want to glorify you with our lives, and, and that's hard, and, and we get lost. We don't always know what to do or what decisions to make. And so we come this morning because we want to hear you speak to us. We want your guidance. We want your clarity on, on how to live in this world. And so, Father, we pray that you would do that with us as we come to your word this morning, that, that you would speak clearly and powerfully to each one of us, and, and that all these different things that kind of hinder us from hearing you speak, our own anxieties, our own fears, our, our busyness, all of those things, that you would just push them off to the side and help us to clearly focus and to clearly hear what you have to say to us this morning. So, Father, we pray that you would open our ears to hear, our eyes to see, and our hearts to receive what you have to say to us this morning. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, we're looking at the last verse of Malachi 2 and the first five of Malachi 3. So if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open them up and look, find Malachi 2.17. And we're going through chapter 3, verse 5. And some of these passages will be pretty... Malachi is not necessarily always a familiar book, but um, some of these passages will be fairly familiar. Malachi 2, 17 through 3, 5. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he's pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. So I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers and perjurers against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive aliens of justice, but do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. So I came across a story uh, a few weeks ago that was really interesting and has had me kind of going down this random, it's not really a random rabbit hole, really, but I've been studying this random person. Maybe not so random for you. Um, so I want to know, has, does anybody know who Moses Ordway is? I expected Sandy to know that. Dean, good. Um, so 
If not, I encourage you, go home and start studying Moses Ordway. And uh, the only reason I had ever heard his name before I came across some of his letters is there's a mural for him in Beaverdam because he's one of the founding fathers of Beaverdam. And, uh, and so, I, for one, I just want to read, because I, I love history and I love kind of hearing what things were like. So he came into Beaverdam in 1842. Here's how he described Beaverdam. He said, so take, for example, our life in Beaverdam. When we came here, it was a dense forest. No houses, no mills, no roads, and no fences. Only a few scattered people and not a rich man among them. But in a few years, Grubville, which, by the way, that was the derogatory name for Beaver Dam for a while. It's kind of like if you call, if you call, now you'd call people like, oh, they're a bunch of scrubs. That's kind of like grubs. It's this Grubville, just a bunch of grubby people. Um, as it was called, it became a very noted place with mills, churches, stores, and factories, but it cost much hard work, and it's true that I had no small hand in it. He said, I owned the first sawmill, and Mr. Brower and I surveyed and located all of the roads in and out of Beaver Dam as they now run to Watertown, Waupon, Columbus, Fox Lake, Lowell, Horicon, and Fall River, and we helped to build the pole bridges and other improvements without one cent of pay. Isn't that crazy? So all these roads that we drive on all the time to all of these cities, he was part of surveying and laying out. He built all the bridges, started the sawmill, started industry here. And I mean, he got paid through his businesses, but plotting the roads and the bridges, he got paid not a cent for just because he wanted to see this city develop. But what he's actually more known for, because Beaver Dam, let's be honest, not super famous, but what he's more known for is that he was a church planter. And actually, that's what the mural in town uh, kind of shows who he is. If you go down, it's over by the watermark. You can see it. it says Moses Ordway, pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Beaver Dam. That was the first church in town was a Presbyterian church. And he actually, he planted the very first Presbyterian church in all of Wisconsin among the Native Americans up in, by Green Bay. And so uh, I was listening to some Presbyterian guys say, like, the first Presbyterians in Wisconsin were the Native Americans. That's where the, the first church was. And then he came from there down to Beaver Dam, and then he planted a church here, and then he planted a church in Rolling Prairie, which is a teeny little... I had to look it up, so I'm new enough. I didn't even know where that was. A teeny little town just outside of Beaver Dam. Planted a church in Juneau, in Horicon, in Fox Lake, and by Lake Emily. Um, so this guy was prolific. So he was, you could just tell he's devoted and diligent to seeing God's kingdom come through business and community development, but also through churches. But, but here's what I love even more. So this guy's planting churches everywhere. You have to hear, and I'm, I'll let you read his own words, of his church planting strategy. Because I'm going to guarantee you have never read this strategy in a book. You've never heard anybody encourage anybody to have this strategy for church planting um, but it was highly effective for him. I'll let you read. So he says, I have in all my ministry never sought for an easy place where they could pay a large salary, but on the contrary, have always looked for a miserable place, describing Beaver Dam, just so, a miserable place where no harm could be done. I would look for a place where the people were so poor, stupid, or heartless 
that they would not ask a minister to preach to them. It would take pains to say that they would not be able to pay as a gentle hint for you to leave them alone. In such a place, I delighted to put my foot, but I never preached to them the love of Christ to harden them for a long siege, but began with St. Paul's doctrines, and very soon there'd be a new face on things. As soon as they were awake and God began to increase them and they began to want to pay me, I would open the door for some anxious minister who was ready for work and I would go to another place. This has been the order of my ministry from first to last and I have, not, I have had not a little comfort in my service. So this, I mean, this is a guy who's planting churches everywhere and he said my strategy is i go into really hard places with hard people with hard hearts and then i preach hard messages and um i I laughed as he was describing beaver dam as a bunch of miserable poor stupid people that he was gonna (laughs) and who are kind of cheap and we're gonna say like we're not gonna pay you so just move along we don't want to hear and he's like that's exactly where i want to be but, but this line in the middle is really interesting, right? He said, I never preached to them the love of Christ to harden them for a long siege, but preached, began with St. Paul's doctrines, and very soon there would be a new face on things. And, and what I find interesting, we don't hear anybody talk about this anymore, is he said, when I'm coming into a hard place with people with hard hearts, if I come in and preach soft messages... I'm afraid I'm going to harden them further. And he said his strategy was to come in and preach hard messages. Talk to people and say, you are a sinner. You are under the wrath of God. You need to repent and turn to Jesus Christ and be saved. And it wasn't the soft message. It was hard. And he said, and after doing that for a while, things began to look different. And he said, then people's hearts were awakened because they knew that they needed Jesus Christ. And and why I start that way is because that's actually what the book of Malachi is doing. We go into the book of Malachi and you're like, these are some hard things. I mean, last week was even hard to preach how hard God was speaking to his people. um, Because we don't talk that way very often. And yet God comes in and he speaks a hard message to hard hearts to, to do something. And it's also in our passage today um, what's being prophesied. And it's helpful to remember, I mentioned it a few weeks ago, but I want to remind us that like, during the time of Malachi, God's people were in a really difficult situation, right? They thought they had been, they'd come out of exile, they had rebuilt the temple, they had rebuilt Jerusalem, rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem, and they thought, now the Messiah is going to come and everything's going to be perfect. And they looked around and they said, nothing's perfect. And, And one commentator said, the promised land didn't become a paradise, instead crops failed due to locusts and drought. Religious activities were becoming burdensome without spiritual effect. Priests and people alike were violating the covenants of their fathers. And as a result, the question had arisen whether it still made sense to adhere to the promise of the coming Messiah. Right? So God's people were looking around and saying, our crops are failing. Like, there is no revival. There's the opposite of revival. The, God's people are kind of spoil, spiraling downward. And they're starting to wonder, should we even keep looking forward to this Messiah? 
that God promised. And what happens when you get into these types of situations is hearts become hard. Um, Like difficult situations are really prime for our own hearts to become hard. And then you throw in questions. And and so one of the things we've seen throughout Malachi is that God's people's hearts were very hard. That every time God would come to them and say, this is what you're doing, their question like, well, how are we doing that? And, and they're so hard in this passage that they're coming and bringing pretty significant accusations against God. They say this. Here's their first accusation against God. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Yeah, thank you. Like, can you imagine saying that to God? And what's happening is because they're looking around and they're seeing evil and wickedness, right, all around them. And they're, in their mind, God's not doing anything about it. And so they're like, well, if there's evil and wickedness going around and God's not doing anything about it, maybe God thinks that that's good. Or maybe he even delights in evil and wicked. Can you imagine saying that to God? We think you delight in evil and wickedness. It's their first accusation. Second one is, where is the God of justice? And it kind of flows from the same situation where, again, and this question actually has kind of two accusations built into it. Because, um, again, they're looking around. They're seeing evil and wickedness around. They're seeing injustice around. And they don't think God's doing anything about it. And so they have two kind of accusations. One, either God's not just because he keeps allowing all of this injustice to happen. Or the second accusation is, if God is just, he's just standing back watching it happen, which would actually mean he's not really just. And so they're they're bringing these, like, why hasn't God done anything about this? Why is he being so unjust? Why is he far off? And so as they look out at the world and they see evil and wickedness, they come to the conclusion that, okay, either God's not just, either God's far away, or maybe Maybe God just likes evil. He delights in it. And these are, like, some of them come in the form of questions, but as I've already pointed out, none of these questions are actually questions. And, and like, you do this as a parent, right? You'll, you'll walk up to your kid and you'll say, is that really an intelligent thing for you to be doing? <laughs> now, you are not asking <laughs> them to respond. You're saying, This is not intelligent. Stop doing that, right? And so that's what they're doing too when they say, where's the God of justice? They're saying, God is not just and he's far away. Um, And so they're they're accusing God and so God responds to their accusations in this passage. And and Malachi kind of kicks it off and he comes to the people and he says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. And you say, how have we wearied him? by saying, by making these accusations, right? And, and what I think is really powerful here is that back in chapter 1, do you remember one of the accusations? I kind of pointed at this. One of the accusations God's people were bringing against him, and they were saying, you're just wearing us out, God. You just ask us so much. You're wearying us with all of the things that you expect of us. And God comes to them and says, you've wearied me. You've worn me out by all of your complaining and accusations and faithlessness. And it's almost like God's way... I mean, obviously God can't get tired physically. 
but it's like God's way of saying, I'm tired of it. You've worn me out by all of these things. And so he corrects, he starts to correct all of the different accusations that they have been bringing against him. And so one of those accusations was, well, maybe God's just far off. Maybe he's too busy. He's just never going to come. And God responds first by saying, I'm coming. (laughs) You think I'm far off, but I'm coming. And he says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And, And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And so he says, I I am coming, but before I come, I'm going to do what? I'm going to send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And and this was just a custom back then. It's a pretty common... Actually, we do the same thing today. When the president comes into town... I don't know. Has he ever... Probably not come to Beaver... Has he come to Beaver Dam? Maybe through Beaver... Anyways. (laughs) Either way, when the president comes to town, what do they do? They send in a group of people to say, the president's coming to town... And then they send in a bunch of agents and stuff to make sure it's clear for him to come into town. They prepare the way. Well, they did that back, back then, too. When the king was coming into a town, they would send a messenger ahead, and the messenger would come into the town and say, the king's coming. Get your city in order. Get ready to receive the king. But then what they also did is as they traveled the roads to and from the city, they literally prepared the, the road, the, the way. They would remove rocks and, and any like downed trees or whatever that would be in the way that would prevent him from entering the city. They would prepare the way like that. And so we know who this is, right? John the Baptist. And uh, we know that because, one, John the Baptist said, I've been sent to prepare the way of the Lord. But we know it even more because Jesus said he was sent to prepare the way of the Lord. So when Jesus says, that's John the Baptist, we say, yes. (laughs) We don't question him on that. And so this is John the Baptist, and so God's people were accusing God of standing far away and not coming, and God says, oh, I'm coming, and I'm going to send John the Baptist first, and he's going to prepare the way for my coming. He's going to announce it, and he's going to remove obstacles so that people are ready when I come. And the question is, what did John, how did John prepare the way? In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of of Judah, repent, for the kingdom of God is at, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John preached hard messages to a hard people with hard hearts. And even, I was going to share this other one, but um, there's even a point where John's looking out at the people and saying, God's coming in judgment over you. The, the axe is at the root of the tree. The tree is going to get cut down and burned and thrown into the fire. Repent. And then it follows that by saying, and in such ways, John preached the good news. He prepared hearts by preaching hard messages of repentance. And that's, that's, why, that's the only reason why we should ever preach hard words. It's because we want to see hard hearts broken and obstacles overcome and walls broke down so that God's word could be received to prepare a way. We don't ever speak hard words to anybody just to hurt them or to beat them up or make them feel guilty. That's not the point. The point is repentance, which leads to life. And this has always been the case. John the Baptist did it 2,000 years ago. Moses Ordway did that 200 years ago. Calvin 
says repentance, you know, this is 500 years ago, repentance, therefore, is the commencement of true docility. As I have already said, and it, repentance opens the gate for entering into the school of Christ. It prepares the way for the coming of the Lord. And so that's, that's what's going on. And then he says, when I send my messenger, he's going to prepare the way. He's, then he says, and then I'll come. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And, you know, we see two things in this passage, right? On the one hand, he says, the Lord that you seek, which is kind of like the Lord that you think is far off, (laughs) the Lord that you think is never going to come, I'm coming. And I'm going to come and I'm coming to the temple and I'm going to come quickly. But then he says, the messenger of the covenant is coming. And, and the way this is written is that the Lord who's coming into the temple and the messenger of the covenant are the same people, the same person. Um, we see that that's Jesus. Jesus, the messenger of the covenant, because he comes to kind of seal the covenant of God that God's people have broken for ages and ages and ages. Jesus comes and he's not only just the messenger of the covenant as far as speaking the truth about the covenant, but he's the one who lived and died and rose again to seal that covenant on God's people. And when he came, he came to the temple too, didn't he? There's, there's a lot in here where God's saying, when I come, I'm going to come as a messenger, Jesus as a prophet, but I'm also coming as a priest and a king. And I'm going to come into the temple. And as we already read in John, when Jesus came into the temple the first time, what did he do? He ransacked it and threw it over because they had fallen away. And then we read this, and this is kind of interesting because we don't, this is describing Jesus' coming. And we don't often think of it this way. He says, who, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire. He's like the fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Remember, he's speaking this to a people that he had just got done saying, Stop bringing your offerings to the temple because you're, you're, you're profaning my name the more that you do this. You've fallen so far away. He said, I'm going to send someone. He's going to come and he's going to purify these people. He's going to refine them so that they can actually bring sacrifices and offerings to the Lord that please him. They can, bring, they can live a life that pleases him. But how is he going to do it? Through fire. And, you know, we know that this, these are, kind of happen on two different time frames. And that's one of the hard parts with, with prophecy is we see this happen at Jesus' coming, but we also see it happening when Jesus comes again. He'll come in judgment. But, um, but prophecy has this way of talking about this. We talk about the already, the not yet. So Jesus is doing this now. He's refining and purifying us. Obviously, we, we've already talked about he's doing that through his life, death, and resurrection. When you turn to him in faith, you're refined, you're purified. But he has a way, there's a process of sanctification where you're increasingly, you're not just forgiven, but you become 
pure. You become made holy. And he does that through a refining fire, through difficulties, trials, by cranking up the heat. Um, And he says, I'm going to sit over my people as a master craftsman who purifies gold and silver. I know exactly what I'm doing. I'm going to crank up the heat. It's going to get hot. It's going to be uncomfortable. But the result is that impurities are going to be slowly taken away. I don't know if any of you have ever purified. I've never purified. I've purified something very less lead. And I've used that for making fishing lures. But as you purify it, you scoop off some of the impurities, you put it off to the side, and then more come up. And you, you keep doing that until it's perfectly purified. He said, I'm going to sit over my people, over you, over his people back then, like a master craftsman, turning up the heat and scraping off the impurities until you are purified. And he says, I'm going to sit while I do it. Because it's going to take a long time. <laughs> Uh, for one, because God's people at that point had fallen so far away. He's like, it's going to take a really long time. But the reality is, Jesus has been doing this over his people for how long? 2,000 years now. And who knows how long, but it's going to take a long time sitting over us and purifying us. But the goal of it is so that we would bring worship to him. Never just a punishment, never just to beat us up, but so we'd be purified, refined. We could bring an offering to him. But I can tell you, this was not the answer God's people were looking for. <laughs> because when they were asking God like, to come and saying, like, well, God, maybe you like evil because I see all this evil around, but you're not doing anything about it. And God's like, oh, no, I'm going to come and I'm going to purify evil. But they were saying, we see all this evil out there. <laughs> There's all this evil and wickedness out there amongst those people Like, come and do something about that. And God says, oh, I'll come. And I'll handle evil and wickedness. uh, But I'm going to come to my people first. I'm coming to you. And I'm going to address your evil and your wickedness. And I'm going to turn up the heat and I'm going to purify you so that you can actually worship me rightly, so you can actually live a life pleasing to me. So that's kind of... His answer to the first accusation, is their second accusation is, where's the God of justice? And he says, that's a then, not hen. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I'll be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And so again, they're they're accusing God, hey, you've been far off, you've stood back, you haven't been just. And God says, I will come. I will come in justice. And he says, I will come quickly. I'll come suddenly. And I'll be quick. He's using suddenly and quick to say, like, this is going to happen faster than you think, and I'll be quick to testify against you and your evil and your wickedness. And so, again, their answer is, where is this God of justice? And he says, I'm coming, and I'm coming in judgment and justice to you now. And it's interesting, you know, there's this long list of, of different evils and, and wickednesses, and, 
And I, you can't quite tell if this, this is the same list of things that God's people were saying, God, why don't you do something about this? And he's saying, I'm going to come and I'm going to address it. Or, which I think is maybe more likely, is they were calling out for evils and wickednesses out there, and these were going on in there amongst them, and they were completely blind to it. And so God's saying, when I come, I'm going to come, and I'm going to show you, and I'm going to testify against you and all of these wickednesses. But it's all summed up with that line at the end. People who do not fear me. He says, that's actually the root of all of these things, is a people who don't fear me. That a people who've just decided they're going to do whatever they want to do, however they want to do it, because they don't fear God. He says, that's the only reason you would ever mess with sorcery because you don't fear God. It's the only reason you'd commit adultery, because you don't fear God. It's the only reason you would go around lying, because you don't fear God. The only reason you'd oppress your workers, or the widow, and the orphan, is because you do not fear God, or the traveler, or the sojourner. It's because you just do whatever you want to do, and God says, I'm coming. And I will bring judgment against all who do not fear me and do all of these things as a result. And again, not the answer they were looking for, right? When they're asking for the God of justice, they're asking for God to do justice out there. And God says, no, I'm coming to you first. And, and really, I think this is one of the huge benefits of, of the season of Lent, is to kind of push back against that tendency in each one of us. I, I mentioned at the beginning of Lent that, you know, the season of Lent is a season of self-reflection and penitence. Not penance, but penitence, like repentance, having a repentant heart. And, uh, and so it's a season where we intentionally go into a time of self-reflection. We look at our own sin, our own evil, our own wickedness, our own failures, and then we bring those those to Christ. And, and why it's important for us to have seasons where we do that intentionally is that our natural tendency is to be very worried about all of the sins out there. And to be preoccupied about calling God to bring justice to all of the sins out there. And uh, the season of Lent and, and this passage reminds us before you even talk about those sins out there, you need to take a real close look at these sins in here and the evil and the wickedness in here because God will come against that as well. And so uh, this is what Jesus was talking about when he told the Pharisees, pull the log out of your own eye before you begin to take the speck out of someone else's eye. He doesn't say don't take the speck out of the other person's eye, but he says, you need to look at your own sin and failure first. Get right there first. Bring it to Christ first. Then you can start talking about the sin that's out there. Um, but the passage is also a reminder for us that as we go through Lent and as we look at our own sin and, and failure, that this is a way of preparing our hearts for the Lord. And it's prepared through repentance and faith. Um, not just feeling guilty. Right? Hearts are not prepared for the Lord by just feeling guilty all the time. That's not, that doesn't prepare your heart for the Lord. That will actually harden your heart for the Lord. I'm going to read a passage in a little bit that actually says, if you just feel guilty all the time, that leads to death. 
But a heart's prepared for the Lord when you repent. When you see your sin and failure, you see the evil and wickedness within you, and then you turn from it. And you grab hold of Jesus Christ by faith, and he cleanses you and forgives you and, and softens your heart and strengthens you. And so it's, it's a repentant heart that's prepared for the Lord, not a guilty heart, not a beat-up heart, not a weary heart. Um, the passage I'm going to show you comes from 2 Corinthians. And uh, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, and he had, he had written to the Corinth because Corinth was, well, at least we'll say it's a lot. You could describe Corinth the same way that Moses Ordway described Beaver Dam a long time ago. A hard city with hard people with hard hearts. And so Paul wrote a hard letter to them. And, and here's what he says about that. He says, even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret like I felt kind of guilty for a little while. But I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice. Not because you're grieved, right? He's not rejoicing because people feel guilty, but he's rejoicing because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. There's a difference. And a godly grief is one that produces repentance, that produces people who are turning from their sin and being forgiven and cleansed and strengthened through Christ. That's how your heart is prepared for the Lord. And then when you have that kind of godly grief that leads to repentance, you have life and peace and salvation without regret. And that's even regretting the things that you just repented from. They're gone. But you see, a worldly grief leads to death because a worldly grief is just feeling bad about it but doing nothing. I just feel bad that I messed up, and I feel really bad that I messed up, and then I beat myself up because I feel really bad that I messed up. And you just keep doing that, and it just consumes you, and it kills you in your soul and eventually physically. I've watched it, I've watched it happen. Um, that's not preparing your heart for the Lord. We're not called to just live in um, guilt and pain and just, no, recognize it, Godly grief, you grieve the sin in your life, but then godly grief brings you to turn from it. Repent. Grab hold of Jesus Christ and be redeemed. And that's my, it's really my prayer uh, for us this morning and, and for the season of Lent that, that we would all live with a soft, repentant heart. And uh, I'll tell you, actually, we, you know, we have this prayer calendar where uh, we have everybody in our church on it. We pray for, I pray for all of you individually once a month. And uh, every time I pray for you, I pray that God would give you a soft, repentant heart that would be prepared for the Lord, that you would be turning from sin and grabbing hold of Jesus Christ on a daily basis, because that's what it means to live the Christian life. And I want to share one final passage, because I think it kind of ties all this together and puts it in a different perspective, and it puts it in a different perspective that we don't often think of this passage. Maybe we do. But we often don't think of it along the lines of repentance, but it is. It's talking about here's the Christian life. We're running a race, and we're throwing off anything that hinders us. And how are we doing that? By repenting. We're preparing the way of the Lord so that we can run this path clearly. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let's repent. Let's lay aside every weight 
and sin that clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's come to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come into your presence continuing to be thankful that you're our God and thankful that you've called us to be your people. Father, we enter into seasons like this that we become honest with ourselves about our own sin, our own failure. We recognize that it would be very easy for you to throw us off and cast us off as your people. But you're faithful. And we're thankful for that. And Father, we come to you and we confess right now. We take just this opportunity right now to to lay our own faithlessness before you, our own sin and wickedness that's in our own hearts. I I don't know for everyone else here, but we all have something, I pray, that's twinging at our hearts right now this morning. And Father, we take those things and we confess them. We give them to you and we turn from them this morning. We ask that you would not only forgive us for them, but that you would cleanse us and then fill us with your spirit and strengthen us to turn away from them and to live a life of following you. So Father, do that in our lives. Help each one of us to live lives with soft hearts, ready to repent, receive your forgiveness and your cleansing and your strength. And then Father, lead us out from here into the world to bring glory and honor to you. And all God's people said, amen.